Good morning. It's great to be here with you today and share my heart. And as I watch that video, it uh, just reminds me that, I don't know if you've thought of this, but the whole world has been in the same trial at the same time. And you see how it affected the Stricklers as they were restricted in their movements. And uh, it's a, it's a long-term trial. It's a life and death trial. It's a trial with many unknowns. But I'm glad this morning that my hope and joy and your hope and joy is in the one who knows us and knows the future. So we're thankful for that this morning. But no matter how long you've been a believer, a follower of Christ, there's going to come that time when God has you in one of those trials where you just want to say, Lord, what are you doing? I don't understand. Well, today I want to look at that question. Lord, what are you doing? And I want to try to actually answer it for all of us. Uh, Because I believe if we don't know the answer to that question, if we don't know the correct answer, many things in our lives as Christians won't make sense. Or even worse, if we don't know how to answer that question when we're in a trial, it could leave us in despair and doubt. Let me pray for us as we begin today. Father, I thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for your presence with us today. Thank you for loving us perfectly every day. I thank you for your word and for your spirit. And I ask today that I'd be able to share freely your word and that you would apply it to our hearts as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of you are familiar with Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, She wrote the book, Through Gates of Splendor. Uh, It's about her husband, Jim Elliot, who, along with four others, was killed by the tribal men that they were trying to make contact with and uh, when they were in Ecuador. Well, before she, mar- uh, before she married Jim, uh, she had committed her life to missionary service as well, uh, specifically to take unwritten tribal languages and put them, break them down into writing so they could be translated into the scripture. Well, she had moved into a tribe and spent about three years there doing just that. And God gave her a wonderful resource in a man who knew the tribal language and Spanish which made it tremendously easier to translate. Well, one day, for no apparent reason, this translator, this man, was murdered. She thought, Lord, I need him. What am I going to do? Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing? Well, it came time for her to take all that work that she had done and put it in a suitcase and leave the tribe. And uh, she had a the whole full uh, suitcase full of all those notes and vocabulary and things that she had compiled. But when she was traveling, that suitcase holding all of her work was stolen. Lord, what are you doing? Lord, this does not make sense. Why would you waste such a resource? The work done in service to you to be continued. Uh, Well, Matt has been doing a great job of taking us through the book of Matthew. And just last week, he he had a message that reviewed how Jesus showed himself to be the perfect king. And I want to return briefly to one of those times when Jesus showed his disciples who he is. Uh, Because I'm referring to a number of passages this morning. There's a thing in your bulletin that has all the verses, most of them, written out. So you can use that to make it easier as as I go through. So turn to the first one, Matthew 8. 23 to 27, and let's review where Jesus calms the storm. 
Matthew 8, 23 to 27 says, And he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And when they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and the sea obey him? Now, if I was in that boat, that'd be one of those situations where I would be saying, Lord, what are you doing? In fact, that's kind of what they said. Lord, don't you care that we're drowning? We have left everything to follow you, and now we're going to die out here. Now, these men knew that this was a life and death situation. If something didn't change, they were all going to perish. And it seemed to them as if Jesus didn't even care. Now, I don't know about you, but that's exactly what I say sometimes. Lord, I'm drowning. Don't you care? So, question. Why did Jesus put them in that situation? What was he doing? See verse 26. It says, And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? So we see this was about their faith. It was a test of what they believed about him. Consider what Matt uh, reviewed last week from Matthew, uh, what the disciples had witnessed uh, in the previous chapters. Jesus healed all kinds of illnesses, including leprosy. He exercised authority over demons, casting them out with a word. And then when the centurion came to him and asked him to heal his paralyzed servant, The centurion believed Jesus could just say the word without going to the servant, and he would be healed. What did Jesus say? He said he hadn't seen greater faith in all of Israel. That centurion knew enough about Jesus to trust his authority over the natural world. So Jesus had just shown his disciples his power and his authority, and now he was going to give them an opportunity to trust him with their very lives. Well, he showed them that they still needed more faith, just like we do. So along with the test, Jesus also also showed himself to them in that new circumstance. He He knew that they needed to see him better so they could grow in their faith in him, their faith in who he was to them. He does that in my life and yours, I'm sure. Sometimes I get feeling pretty good about my faith in him, So he gives me a situation I haven't faced before. He tests my faith again in a new way for my good. So Jesus calmed the storm with a word, and how did they respond? I love verse 27. It says, the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? I feel like previously they had seen him with their eyes, doing all these great things. But now they had experienced in this life and death situation his power personally. He wanted them to trust them. He he wanted them to trust him with their very lives. I want all of us to experience his power in our lives. Not just the power to fix our problems, but the power to fix us, to fix our doubt and turn it to faith. So today I want to explore this foundational reality and walk through a few examples. Uh, One night when my wife and I were still in our 30s, so a few years ago, she was online 
trying to figure out what was wrong with her. She did not believe the neurologist three years earlier who had diagnosed her with essential tremors. Well, this was a day of dial-up, you know, when it went like this. <laughs> well, she came across an article um, on the, the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And the page slowly loaded, and as she watched each symptom appear on that page, she realized she matched those symptoms. She had Parkinson's disease. Lord, what are you doing? I'm not even 40 years old and I have Parkinson's disease? Well, God had prepared Tammy for that day over the previous decade. He did that through her time reading the Bible, especially the whole Old Testament. She had purposely read with the intention of finding out how involved God is in every detail of our lives. She grew in her faith in God's character and her understanding of his ways. He had prepared her to answer the question correctly. She knew what he was doing. He was testing and increasing her faith, as he had promised to do. It was a devastating reality, no doubt about it. So she went to God, and his answer was, this is a fulfillment of my purpose in your life and in your husband's life and your children. And by faith in him, she accepted that his ways were best. And she experienced God's power in her life. She experienced the fruit of the Spirit in that situation, peace and joy. So how did she do that? Well, God did it in her, right? She accepted it because she understood God's goal. So let's talk about goals for just a minute. Have you ever noticed that two people or two groups can be praying exact opposite things? And those two people will see the answer as good or bad depending on their goal. For example, the chairman of the parade is praying for sunny skies on Saturday, right? Well, every farmer in that county is praying for rain. They have different goals. Or maybe the car just won't start, and mom is praying that God will heal it. But little Johnny's praying that it'll stay dead because she's trying to get him to the dentist. They have different goals. And how, how you see the answer, whether good or bad, will depend on your goal. So the key to answering this question, Lord, what are you doing, is to know his goal. If we're trying to figure out what he's doing, we should know what his goal is. What is his goal? What is he doing? He is fulfilling his good goal because he is good. That's a good place to start. When we see his love, his power, his wisdom bring just the right situations into our day, we can react by faith and not in our flesh, in our old nature. But if we don't see those trials in the framework of his power, his love, and his wisdom, and we don't see that he's perfecting our faith, it will not make any sense when he tells us to count it pure joy when you encounter those trials. Let's turn to James 1, verse 2 to 4. James 1, 2 to 4, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds, meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, 
that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Lord, what are you doing? He's doing what it takes to make us perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's his goal. And if that's what, um, what we want, we can have joy in the midst of our trials because we see that. But if we don't want God to increase our faith, we have to ask ourselves why. 1 Peter uh, 1, 6-9 puts it this way. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, so that your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. For me, uh, verse 7 is key. It tells us that these trials have come to prove the genuineness of our faith. That's God's goal. And 1 Peter 4, 1-2 says this, Since therefore, or therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result... And notice this, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. That's his call. That's his goal. You see, when we're born again, when we put our faith in Christ, when we choose to be a follower of Christ, we transfer our allegiance from fulfilling my desires to God and pleasing him. We went from this life being about the temporary pleasures of this world to being about the eternal rewards of right relationship with our Creator and Heavenly Father. Before, we were slaves to sin, but now we are servants of Christ. Before, we tried to find our purpose and our satisfaction in acquiring the temporary rewards of this world, but now our desire is to find our satisfaction in pleasing Him. We want to daily hear, well done, from our eternal Father. Now, if you became a Christian, but you didn't realize that this means forsaking this world and following Christ, if you never transferred your allegiance from, Christ, from, from yourself to Christ, I believe you'll be very frustrated by his ways. You'll regularly be disappointed or worse when you encounter trials. The call to count it as pure joy will make no sense when you're hurting. But we can count it as joy when we see that God is helping us accomplish the most important goal, your very purpose for existence. Simply put, to trust and obey God and therefore glorify him. So let me describe it this way. Over here, our life before we give our lives to Christ, before we've transferred our allegiance from our own pleasure to a commitment to serving God and his pleasure. And over here, the Christian life lived for God. Over here, our goals are for what we want in this world. Over here, our goal is to grow in faith and in our trust and obedience to our Heavenly Father. So if we've been born again, our framework 
for good and bad has changed. Over here, a flat tire hindered my goal. Over here, a flat tire was a trial, and it helped me with my goal of seeing God as good and faithful, worthy of my trust in everything. Over here, Tammy saw the tragedy of Parkinson's disease. But she had traded her framework of good and bad. She saw God's good goal of transforming her into the image of Christ. It's a test of her faith, which to her is more precious than worldly riches. So what is God doing? He is faithfully helping us daily to commit to our eternal citizenship and renounce our ties to this world. And I will say for Tammy, that's a daily reality because a lot of the the things of this world aren't there anymore. So how does God do this? By helping us see him better, just like the disciples in the boat. Just like Tammy, as she read those stories of the Old Testament and New Testament. We see him as we read the word. We all do that. We see him in the testimony of others. We see him in his creation. And we see him as he transforms us to be more and more like his son. So who is God in our trials? Who do we see? Who are we looking to see? Let's turn to Romans 8. And I'd love to read the whole chapter, but I encourage you to do that this week on your own. But we'll just take a look at Romans 8, 28 to 30. Romans 8, 28. And one of the problems with this passage is it's so familiar to us. But I want us to take a fresh look at it today. 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So who is God, who is God to us when we're in a trial? Well, first, we see from this passage that he is the object of our love. This promise is for those who love God. We also see that he is the one who calls us according to his purpose. Simply put, he calls us to a right relationship with himself, to be restored as his children, heirs with Christ. And what is his purpose? His purpose is that we glorify him. And simply stated, we glorify him by receiving that forgiveness and then responding back by loving him. Next in this passage, we see that God is the one who works everything in your life together for good. That means he's intimately involved in orchestrating the details of your life for good. A flat tire, an illness. He puts everything in your life for good. But the big question is, what is the good? The answer is in the next verses. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The good is that we become more like Jesus, not that all of our earthly problems go away. He coordinates all the things for us, everything for us, to be conformed to the image of his son. This is the answer to the question, Lord, what are you doing? He is causing all things to come together so that we will learn to love, trust, and obey him. 
He's helping us fulfill our purpose as well as his. Usually that involves various kinds of trials. So who is God in this trial and what is he doing? It's important that we get specific and not just look at generalities. If you're over here thinking that he promised to fix all your troubles and you will find him unfaithful. If you think you deserve to be treated better and God should rescue you, eventually you will think that God either doesn't care or is unable to help you. But over here, you agree with God that these hardships are fulfilling his good goal in your life and you can count it as joy. In fact, did you know that God planned all your days, including sirens? He planned all our days, including the opportunities that we will have to trust him and obey. All those opportunities are things that he planned. Most of us are familiar with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and probably a lot of you could quote it right now, right? It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And that is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. But look at verse 10. I always like to include 10. It says, for we are God's handiwork. Sounds like it's not all up to me, is it? We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Every day when you wake up, Remember, God has planned the opportunities you'll have that day to see him and trust him. Be ready to respond to, by trusting him. The sad thing is, we often don't even notice that we're in a spiritual battle. Nothing to see here, just move on. Someone cuts us off in traffic. How do we respond? By wishing them a nice day? Or maybe some other way? Or, as believers, do you see the God who can give you love and forgiveness? How about when you get that unexpected bill in the mail? Do you start worrying about how you'll pay it? Or do you see the God who can provide not only your physical needs, but who can provide the peace that you need? It's all about our framework, isn't it? Our goal, what's good, what's bad. What would it look like if we trusted God, if we trusted that God was actually working in every situation for our good, how would it change us? God wants that situation to remind us of who he is and what he's doing to help us trust him more. It's a reminder. And if we miss it, we miss the blessing. Let's go back to Elizabeth Elliot. When the suitcase of all her work went missing, what do you think she and her coworkers did? Of course, they prayed that God would bring it back, that he would return it, he would restore all that work. And of course, if God causes all things to work together for good, he certainly would not let all that work go for nothing, right? Well, God never returned that suitcase. And Elizabeth felt like a failure. All that time and energy and nothing to show for it. Here's how she tells the story. She says, I was lying in my hammock in the jungles, turning these events over in my mind, and I cried, God, you have allowed all of this to be destroyed. I've given my life to you. Three years are gone, stolen. Why am I even here in the jungles? 
Well, eventually she was reading Isaiah 43, and she came across verse 10, and it spoke to her. Here's how she puts it. She read it. You are my witness, Betty, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand who I am. She told her close friend, I need to know the character and ways of my God so that I'm not shaken. Later, she described it this way. I had to choose to believe that God was coordinating the events of my life in a pattern for good, or that I was at the mercy of chance and that God was not sovereign and I should just pack my bags and go home. She goes on to say, there are only two choices. Either you trust God or you don't. Wow. That was a turning point in her life. It changed her life forever. Now, she knew how to answer the question. Because she, did, because she did answer the question correctly, she grew in her understanding of God, she grew in her faith and love, and therefore continued her missionary work and was used greatly by God. Many of you know her from her many books and her testimonies. Even after her husband, he prepared her for this one, her husband was killed. She's a young mother on the mission field. Her husband was killed, but she returned to that tribal group who killed her husband to live with them, to bring them the gospel. And it's the same with Tammy. Because she answered the, the question correctly, her faith and her love grows every day. Some days, I have, uh, some days have little trials, and some days are much harder. But because she depends on God being good, she holds on to that every day. Because she depends on God being good, she makes the effort to unpack her trials and finds the lies and the truth about God. And he renews her mind and gives her peace in the midst of the storm. So we know we have to be ready to see who God is in our situation. He is the one giving us those situations to help us trust, love, and obey him in that situation. So a bit of my own, my own testimony. As Tammy was growing in, in these, this process, I was with her. I was in total agreement with what God was doing. But while I agreed fully, I was not really applying what I said I believed. Now, I thought I was a pretty good example of a follower of Jesus, but she has a, a, a degree in husband training. And I'm a better man for it. Husbands agree? I don't know where they go to school for that, but they're really good at it. But in love, she started pointing out examples in my life where I was reacting to those little irritations according to my old nature. I was ignoring that God was even present, much less the designer of that moment. I was born again, but responding like I was still over here living for myself. Now, I, I thought I was doing pretty good, you know, seeing God in my trials, but I'd often react to those little irritations with a comment or a verbal sigh. Today, Tammy and I joke about the mustard incident. It started in the drive-thru. Now, when I order food, you may know me a little bit, and you know this about me. I'm very picky about it coming the way I ordered it. Well, when my burger came with mustard, 
which I clearly said to that box, I made some complaining comment, to which she replied lovingly, that did not sound like the spirit. See, she desperately needed me to also demonstrate my belief that God was good in everything. So I started to notice my response to those daily little irritations. I began to realize that God was daily giving me these opportunities to be reminded that he was intimately training me, transforming me. Now, I believe if we wait for the big trials, we'll miss out on 99% of, of the opportunities to grow in our faith. And our love for the Father which means we miss out on the growing experience of the fruit of the Spirit. So, as I started to process the small stuff, I got used to unpacking my trials. And that really revolutionized my relationship with the Lord and with others. Um, even my children will tell you that God is changing things in me that they never expected to change. I didn't do it. God did it in me. And I'm thankful. So, how do we unpack those trials as we live over here growing in our faith? How do we renew our minds so we stop responding to trials over here like God wasn't working for our good? Well, I first have to point out that while God is doing the work in us, we are called to respond by also working hard to grow. And as you probably know, our sinful nature, our old man, will fight it all the way. They'll always find an excuse. Turn with me to Hebrews 5.14, and we'll see what it says there. Hebrews 5.14. It says, But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Let me use another personal example. Uh, when I have an appointment, I've, made a, I've set a time to meet with someone. I hate to be late. Um, I've given my word, and I want to be seen as considerate, right? Um, so when, it, when something makes me late, that slow driver or whatever, I'm tempted to be anxious. So when I'm tempted to be anxious, what do I do? Well, I want to suggest three steps from the scripture that gives, the scripture gives us that will help us train ourselves, that will help us unpack who God is and what he's doing in our day. First, come to God and put your trust in him. It's pretty basic. Don't miss this, though. Remember, Elizabeth um, had to choose to trust God's goodness and plans. Now, before everything, of course, we have to come to him for salvation, to be born again, to receive him as our savior. None of this works without that because that's when we receive the Holy Spirit. So we have to come to him by faith and trust him initially, but we have to continue um, and trust him every day as a believer, right? Well, maybe some of you are here today and say, I've, I've not put my trust in Christ. I haven't transferred my, my, <clears throat> my allegiance from myself to the Heavenly Father. Or maybe you're here and you're just not sure. Go to him today. Ask him for help. 
Ask him to help you see him and know him. If you're not seeing the fruit of faith in your life, don't despair, but do go to him. Ask him why. Ask him to show you himself. And if there's anyone here that is in that situation you want to talk to us, there's plenty of us that would love to talk to you. But once we're born again, we have daily come to him by faith and we're being transformed in our thinking. Now, if you've come to him and you do trust him and you're trying to please him with your life, remember, he will daily test your faith in him. Like the disciples and Elizabeth and Tammy and myself, he wants more for each of us. So we come to him daily to put our trust in him. So don't miss that, that basic step. It's a choice we make. We come, we ask, we seek, we put our faith in him. Once we've done that, number two, we look to see who God is in that situation. It should get specific, not just these generalities. That's what changed my life in many ways. So you've come to him, you've transferred your allegiance to him, and then he tests that commitment, right? He does that daily. Don't miss him. See him in that situation. Don't try to deal with that situation in your own strength or just try to ignore it. So if I'm running late and I start to feel anxious, and especially if I just say, don't worry, Charlie, what's the worst that can happen? I'm toast, which means I'm in trouble. Because guess what pops back into my head? All those things that are making me anxious. Now, maybe I can control my thoughts in my own strength for a little while. But if I don't turn my focus to who God is and what he's doing, my thoughts will get the best of me and I'll be anxious. I know I have to remember to see God. So how do I do that? How do I focus on God? Well, first, I have to remind myself that God is there. He's there helping fix me. A slow driver is making me late. I actually say out loud, I see you, Father. See, it's a reminder for me to see him. Then I ask, what about God is my faith being tested in right now? I see that he's there giving me this situation. Well, what's he testing my faith in? Is my faith being tested in his provision? You know, what if I miss this meeting and I suffer some kind of loss? Is my faith being tested in his love? Maybe it's being tested in his wisdom or his faithfulness, his power. And this is where I look for the lies I'm being told about God. What lies am I being tempted to believe about God? How about this one? God's not protecting me right now. You ever hear that lie in your own head? Or maybe God's not being faithful to his promises. How about even God can't help me with this situation? Those are lies. And if we don't recognize them, we miss it. Now, lies come to us from every direction. They come from the enemy. They come from the world around us. They even come from my own old nature. So I look for the lies that are testing my faith in my Heavenly Father. Then I can look for the truth that answer those lies from the scripture. For example, if you feel like God's abandoned you, you just feel like he's, where is he at? And the lie is, God doesn't care, he's abandoned you, whatever. Find the verses that talk about him never, ever leaving or forsaking you. 
Or maybe you're doubting his love. Look up the verses about his amazing everlasting love. Write them out. Meditate on them. Your mind will be renewed. You'll receive that peace that passes understanding. He promises it if we turn our hearts to truth. Now, that is from one of the passages that God uses to help me when, when I'm anxious. Notice the instruction in this passage. Notice the instruction it gives and the promise it gives if we'll follow that instruction. Turn to Philippians 4, 4 to 7. Philippians 4, 4 to 7 says, and again, a familiar passage, so don't miss this. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the God of peace, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Our, uh, the, the, the key phrase in there I want to bring out is, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And I'll show you why in a second. Uh, our small group had been studying this passage, and I realized that what brings peace was praying with thanksgiving. Instead of just asking him to fix our problems, fix our situation, I give thanks for who he is in that situation that I'm praying about. But to give thanks, we need to know who he is. I have to figure out how his attributes apply to the situation that's causing my anxiety, right? If I'm worried about losing income, I can give thanks that he is my provider and the one who can give me peace. If I'm anxious about my plans not working out, I can give thanks that he is bigger than my plans and smarter than I am, right? And he's trustworthy with everything in my life. So I, I ask him to show me the truth about himself, and I don't stop until I find it. Look up and write out the verses that you need to renew your mind. Those verses that strengthen your understanding of God and his ways. Truth that will increase your faith, your love, and obedience. So step one, come to him by faith. Step two, really see him and understand who he is in your situation. And step three, set a plan to live by faith. So God gave me truth to help me not be anxious. Now I had to make an effort to train myself to distinguish good and evil, right from wrong. And this really changed my life. I started a habit of praying in obedience to Philippians 4 when it said to pray with thanksgiving. As I thought about my day and I came across something that, that wanted to make me anxious, I would pray, thank you, Lord, that I don't have to worry about this because you are wise and you have promised to give me wisdom to handle it. Thank you, Lord, that your promise to provide all my needs and your, your power and love to give me what is best. And thank you for your presence and attention to every detail in my day today. So Lord, give me that wisdom and kindness that I need to deal with the situation in your power. And thank you for helping me grow in my faith and love for you. And I'll tell you, every time I obeyed by praying with thanksgiving, he was true to his word. And I received that peace that passes understanding. It wasn't peace because he changed the situation. It was peace that came 
from him, not from any circumstance. And often I would have to remind myself of that truth again. Maybe, maybe many times during that same day I'd have to remind myself the truth. But it was always worth it. And he always rewarded that, that obedience. So make a plan to put what you've learned into your daily life. But as I wrap up today, I want to warn you. My old nature and your old nature will try to get us, will try everything to get us not to put the effort in, to just move on by, oh, God will take care of it, God is sovereign. You know, these things that we say and we don't really deal with, we just try to pass it off. But listen to the Lord's encouragement. Turn to 2 Peter 3, 1 through 11. It's in your bulletin notes as well. 2 Peter 3, 1 through 11. says, His divine power has given us, given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that you may, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith, to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection godly love. For if we possess these qualities in increasing measure, and that's the key today. This isn't a one and done thing. He wants us to, to be growing daily, increasing in measure in these things. He says, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them, these qualities, is nearsighted and blind forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, here it is again, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we all know that great relationships don't just happen without some effort and commitment, right? I hope you have some great relationships and I hope you're putting the effort into them. But sometimes it's easy to take our relationship with our Heavenly Father for granted. He's always there. But it can be too easy to put off what we know would benefit that relationship. It's too easy to get in the habit of living over here, reacting to life as if he wasn't there, not loving you. It does take effort. And I will say sometimes it's heart-wrenching to face loss and fear. But if we don't turn over here, seeing who God is in those hardships and how he's loving us, helping us turn our fears into faith, we won't experience his power and his love, his joy and his peace. But if we do, he has such blessing to pour out on us. I picture it this way. He wants us to see him because he knows as we see him better, we can trust him better. And as we trust him better, we can love him more. And as we love him more, 
it causes us to obey him more. And as we obey him more, we see the power, his power in our lives more and more every day. You see how that works? We see him, we trust him, we love him, and then we obey him. And when we obey him, we see his power changing us, working in our lives. We continue to grow truth by truth, trial by trial, in love and obedience. As I conclude, this may not seem like a feel-good message, and in some ways, it's a hard teaching. But I want this message really to be, God is amazing and has amazing things for you. That's the point. Take hold of it, live by it, and you will be blessed. So, Lord, what are you doing? He's loving us. He's showing himself to us. He's giving us opportunities to grow in faith and then to live by faith. He's daily setting out those tests of faith. His goal is for us to live over here with him, where he gives us the fruit of the Spirit. Over here, when we get to fulfill our purpose for existence. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you never leave us or forsake us. I thank you that you are all wise. You know us intimately and perfectly. I thank you that you've called us to yourself and, re and redeemed us, adopted us into your family. Thank you for your love and power and how you bring everything together to help us trust you more and more. So Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in our lives every day. And I thank you that you have promised to help us in every situation. Thank you, Father, for loving us so completely. In Jesus' name. Amen.